Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 117 of Drinks with Tony. And for this episode, I wrote a Christmas song. So let's, uh, a one and a two and a three and. Christmas socks, pestilence socks, politics socks, 2020 socks. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. And now on with the show. Hi, I'm William Loving, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have William Loving. He's the author of City of Angles. William, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Tony? I'm doing okay. You know, like, like I was saying, mediocre is my new grade. I'm, I'm doing fabulously mediocre. Well, I guess the bar is lower these days, right? I know. Yeah. Too bad the bar wasn't low when I was like a teenager. And so the girls in high school would have been like, he's the cutest guy here. They would, the, the bar could have been low in the 1980s. I would have had, I would have a completely different life experience. I don't remember much about the 80s. So let's, let's try to stay in the present. Was it cocaine? I, probably. Really? <laughs> No, it was more like the 70s. Uh, the 80s were, 80s were okay. Yeah. Wait, so you've been, you've been in Los Angeles for 20 years. Where were you, uh, where were you in the 80s? Where, where, did you, where, where do you come from, my friend? I'm from the East Coast. Um, I grew up in Baltimore. Yeah. And have moved around a bit because I was in the newspaper business for 25 years. So I changed jobs a lot. Um, yeah. Back when there were jobs in newspapers. So I, I've exactly. Lived in, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived what? in Connecticut and Rhode Island and Minnesota before I moved to LA. So. Yeah, you were you wrote for the you were on staff at the Providence Journal for a while. Was that that's correct? Mean? That's right. That's right. That, uh, for two years yeah. in the eighties. Yeah, really? That was a blast. Yeah. What's Providence? What was Providence like in the eighties? Because I've I've heard the coolest things about it. It's it's a very cool place. Um, have you ever been there? Yeah. You have been there. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's an old factory town, uh, industrial revolution era factory town. Um, and a lot of preserved history there. It's really, I always used to call it the American history theme park uh-huh. because the city is really well preserved, partly because a lot of economic development bypassed it uh, over the decades. And so it, it kept its sort of uh, antique feeling about it, which is very cool. Um, and it's kind of a, I found it to be somewhat of a mysterious place. It's very insular. You know, a lot of, it's kind of an old joke about Rhode Island is people born, live there and die there and they never leave the state. Some people don't even leave the town they grew up in. It's just a very tight knit insular place and as a newspaper reporter coming in from out of the state and trying to figure it out it was fascinating fascinating place you know with its famous for its uh mafia yeah and political corruption and the very powerful catholic church and uh big catholic population but the kind of the old yankee protestants who settled rhode island you know the descendants of roger williams still had a lot of the power. So it was really a great place to be a newspaper reporter. 
did you ever see that Showtime series? I think it was called Brothers or Brotherland. And it was, it was like, it went about four or five seasons. It was about like one guy who was in the mafia and one guy who was running for office in Providence. And they're like, they're, uh, what do you call it? The cra- craziness ensues. You know how every TV show is and craziness ensues. But, well, knowing Providence the way I do is that sounds like reality, not craziness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was at the Providence Journal, uh, some reporters on our paper spent like a year tailing the chief justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court and found out he was spending pretty much all of his time with mobsters. Uh, wow. With a well, mafia boss. And, and it was kind of like, oh, it's Rhode Island. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I've heard crazy stories. And I've also heard, um, I think it was in the night, maybe the eighties or the nineties. If you lived in New York city and you wanted to get your heroin, you went to Rhode Island and then you came back. Oh, okay. I'm not a drug guy. So I was just, I just go, okay, cool. So there's anyway. a great novel, great yeah. novel about Providence called Providence uh, by Jeffrey Wolf. Uh-huh. Uh, who's the brother of Tobias Wolf. Huh. Um, and when I started at the journal, someone said, Hey, you're new here. You got to read this novel if you want to understand Providence. And it's, it's just a great, great book about kind of small time criminals trying to get made, made into the, into the mob and all the silly stuff they had to go through to get there. And there was a line from that book that has stuck with me. It was so great. He talked about how good the thieves are in Providence. He said, they're so good. They could steal the paint off your house. <laughs> I love that line. That's, you know, that's the beauty of uh, writing and being a novelist is uh, we're fans first. You know, it, it's, we're fans of other writers and that's, and, yes. then all, and then all of a sudden we go, wait a second, maybe we got something in us, you know? Um, what, when was that? Well, what, what was the journey to um, writing City of Angles? Because I know you also got laid off from the LA Times, right? Uh, that's right. Right. My uh, 25 year newspaper career came to a sudden abrupt end uh, in the crash of 2008. Uh, toward the end of 08, uh, the parent company of the LA Times, the Tribune Company of Chicago, filed for bankruptcy and then laid off like several hundred of us at the LA Times. It was just a total bloodbath. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the beginnings of the kernel of the idea that led to my book, even though it took me several years to get around to writing it, um, that kind of sort of midlife crisis. I was, you know, I was in my early 50s at the time. The economy was the worst it had been since the Great Depression. And I didn't know what the hell was going to happen to me. And I had, you know, wife and two high school age kids. Um, so it was kind of a scary time. And then I did eventually get another job. It took about nine months, but it, I took a corporate job to pay the bill. So I was one of the lucky ones. But I started noticing all over L.A., especially where I lived in Glendale and then Pasadena, an alarming increase in the number of homeless people. I mean, it always been a lot of homeless. I mean, right? Skid Row in LA has been around for over a hundred years. But um, I started seeing a lot more people begging on street corners who looked like they'd only recently become homeless. You know, they weren't the usual uh, mentally ill, um, drugged out, alcoholic types that you associate with homelessness. These are people who look like, you know, a, a few months ago, they had a job and a house. Yeah. So. 
start thinking about this calamity that was happening right in front of us. And it made me start to pay more attention to homeless people, including the chronic homeless. And I started to feel like, you know, I I need to say something about this because this is really bothering me. And eventually it kind of germed into a novel. The, it's interesting that because um, because it, it's just it like the term uh, we gotta have better words for it because homeless you know when people say homelessness some people are thinking you know people are screaming at the sky and on you know mm-hmm. crystal meth all day and then there's other people who are just trying to get by who've been in a bad situation for a few months the spectrum is so huge but the word yep. homelessness is I, it's, I don't know what words to bring in maybe something in Latin I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I know in, among uh, homeless activists and volunteers and people who kind of support that community have different terms for it. They call it undomiciled or... Um, <laughs> That's too big of a word for me, undomiciled. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's kind of bureaucratic sounding, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I heard a guy once, I heard a homeless guy once say, I don't consider myself homeless because wherever I lay my head is my home. I'm houseless, but that doesn't make me homeless. And I thought that was so good. I used it in the book. Well, there's, <laughs> and there's that line in the book. That's almost like a Buddhist uh, type of, you know, um, uh, home is always here. Mm-hmm. But do we have a house? Yeah. Exactly. I like that guy. I, I would follow him yeah. for a while to try to get other advice too. I'd be like, wait, wait, no, come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it was part of prepping for this book and researching it. I did start paying more attention to homeless people and talking to them and listening to them, which, you know, we tend not to do, right? I mean, we look past them, we walk past them. Um, Some of them are just, they look so messed up that you just kind of don't want to get involved. Um, So I felt kind of guilty about that, you know, that I was just sort of walking past people. And so I started paying more attention to them and talking to them and started to get a little bit more of a feel for what that life was like. And it's, I, it's intriguing the, um, because I feel like sometimes when I see a homeless person, I go, Oh crap, that could be me. You yes. know, I, I think there's that. And that, that's, uh, that might be something that people don't uh, get so in touch with that feeling, but that feeling is like, ah, oh, that could be me. Um, and then, and then instead of acknowledging that, just like dart the eyes away and walk past, you know. That's, that's right. That's why we, we avert our eyes. Yeah. I think partly because we don't want to be reminded that there is kind of a thin veil, really, uh, separating working people, middle class people, from homelessness or poverty. Just, you know, uh, miss a few paychecks, yeah. miss the rent. Uh, have a, you know, medical emergency, an accident, uh, divorce, you know, who knows? Um, there's, it's a thin veil separating us from that. And that's really kind of the heart of my book is yeah. it's about a guy, a middle-class guy, not unlike me, who does fall through that, that hole. And I want, you know, I was kind of hoping readers when they read my book, sort of get that, like, you know, that, that could happen to any of us, at least, you know, the ones who aren't wealthy and have assets to fall back on. That, you know, that's most of us in this country that could happen to us. 
and that and that's the that's the beauty of bringing it into a novel i feel like like when i read novels i feel like i have there's there's the beauty of empathy i always feel like the word empathy comes in when i'm writing about something like when i'm writing about someone i hate this is how things happen. I get angry about something. I'll start writing about the person and everything they do wrong in their lives. And I'm like, that's a character. I'm going to get back at them. And then as I keep writing, I realize it's just me. I'm like angry at myself about something. So I, I don't know if you've had that or not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm finding empathy with like people that I'm going, wait a second. Yeah. That was bad. Now I'm empathetic. This sucks. <laughs> That's, I mean, to me, that's such a hugely important word, empathy, not just in, you know, living in society, but in, in fiction, you know, in storytelling. I think uh, people can learn empathy or maybe get better at empathy by exposing themselves to, you know, lots of different kinds of people and situations. And fiction and stories, whether it's television, movies, novels, what have you, can do that. It can take you out of your life, right? And yeah. put you in another life and maybe understand other people a little bit better. And I think we're craving empathy so much. We want to be empathetic. We kind of just don't know how in general, as we're trying to go about our day, you know, especially during pandemic where we're just like, okay, mask, <laughs> everything's <laughs> closed. Yeah, it's tough. You can't even see people's faces in anymore. The, the thing, yeah, that's the thing that's kind of been tripping me out from the beginning because we really need to see, we're such animal creatures. We need to see the expressions of the people around us yeah. uh, and to only see eyes. It's like, I see someone's nose right now and I feel like they just pulled their pants down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> oh, wait, that's, I, oh, I forgot. Everyone has one of those. <laughs> yeah, you almost have to get better at reading people's eyes. You know, yeah. to start to try to figure out what expression is under that mask. And you, you, you know, you can kind of tell when somebody's smiling by their eyes, but you kind of have to guess a little bit. I, I've been doing this thing where if I'm like at a, you know, at the bank or something and they go over here, I'm using my hands a lot more. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I've, I've been a hands guy now. It's, it's so weird. So when, so at some point when we lose the mask, I'm still going to be a hands guy probably, right? Because then I'll be like, what's up? What's up with that weird dude? He's using his hands in 2025 in that way. You're, you're becoming Italian all of a sudden, right? I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah. So uh, that, that you know, reminds me too of how, how, how are we all going to be different when this is over? Yeah. You know, how, what kind of habits that we're picking up during this pandemic that may stick with us, whether we like it or not. I mean, I don't know. The world's going to be different for sure. It, it is. It, they call it the new normal. And it's just like, you know, oh, it'll go back. But I'm like, nah, we don't go. We don't go back from this as a collective. And, you know, it's, things will, it's a shift. We're in a huge shift. And th now it sucks. But at some point, I hope, I hope we're like, oh, I was so glad to be a part of that. That was great. And this is why. Maybe not. <laughs> the, um, the, so so when did when did you start working on it because this is your first novel yes when, when did you start working on it how old were you uh i started well the, the idea started taking shape in like in 2015 or so mm -hmm. uh right after i turned 60 huh. so 
and the irony is when I was 18 years old, I went off to a, a liberal arts college in the Midwest that's famous for literary, its literary reputation and stuff. And I was going to major in English and become a novelist. That was my life plan. And through a series of events, I ended up in journalism instead. I just kind of went sideways. And so here I am, 60 years old, and I'm, my journalism career is over. And this little voice in my head starts saying, hey, weren't you supposed to be a novelist Yeah, <laughs> 40, 40 years ago? Um, so I got the urge. I said, yeah, you know what? Maybe I did take a wrong turn back there when I was 18. So I, I need to do this now. So I wrote the novel, uh, basically the first draft in one year, uh, 2016. Yeah. The whole year. I had a day job. So I was doing this on nights and weekends. And I had a 135,000 loose baggy thing of a draft, 135,000 words uh, by the end of the year. And uh, then it was like, okay, now what? Uh, how do I get this thing published? Because I had no idea. I had no idea how the book publishing world worked or anything like that. So I figured I better start studying up on this. There's, and that's the beauty of writing a novel because we don't even know if it's going to come out. We're, we, we, get, yeah. we get this delusional obsession. Even people, you know, even if they're published books, you're working on the next novel. We don't know if it's a thing. And it's, it's like the ultimate, um, what do you call it? It's just, I, it feels like the ultimate risk. Cause it's such a time risk, but there's also a passion involved and just the beauty of the process. I don't know if you, you found that. Love, yeah. You yeah. have to, you have to love the process. You really do. Yeah. Uh, because the, the chances of a payoff are so low, especially if you're not a famous author. Right. Right. Uh, and it's a long shot. And I knew when I went into this, that it was a long shot. Um, not too many debut novelists are 60 something years old for one thing. I was a weird demographic for that. And then I, I also know, and I learned through experience that breaking into publishing when you're unknown uh, is really hard. It's a real long shot. I mean, I spent two years submitting my book to agents, trying to get an agent to take me on. And yeah. I got nothing after two years. So and then what do you do after that? Really two yeah, yeah. Well, and also the submission process, which is just brutal because you have your heart poured out for a year on the weekends and holidays and, mm -hmm. you know, and your wife's going, uh, let's go out to dinner again. Nope. Because I'm going to be big time famous author, you know, <laughs> With that, I'm, I'm taking my uh, experience. But that, and then what, what's it like after two years of submitting and, and there's no there's no one biting. Well, then what do you do? Well, you know, there's these days, there's always self-publishing. It's always, you know, kind of in the background there. Um, Were you thinking lot, about that? I was sure I was absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I was in a couple of writers groups mm -hmm. around town and a lot of people in the writers groups were really into self-publishing and they swore by it and said, you know, it, you're in control and it's your baby and you don't have to be dependent on agents and publishers and all that stuff. Um, and I could kind of see their point, but it was probably just kind of a stubborn pride thing on my part. You know, I, I wanted a publisher 
to validate my effort by saying, yes, this is worth me publishing and putting out there in the marketplace. That meant a lot to me. Um, so I resisted going the self-publishing route, but I, I knew it was always there in the back of my mind. So after two years, um, I pretty much gave up on getting a book deal from one of the big corporate publishers, which you know requires an agent um, yeah. to submit. So I ended up uh, targeting the small independent presses of which there are, I don't know, hundreds mm -hmm. out there. And you don't need an agent um, to submit to them. You just send them the book and see what happens. So that was 2019. Um, I spent, and I, by that time I was actually working with an agent uh, who specialized in the small market press, the small press market. Mm -hmm. um, so that helped. And she, I, I ended up getting from June to December of 2019, I had four contracts offered to me. And this agent had me turn them all down, <laughs> which was brutal. Wow. Uh, yeah. After all those years of, of rejection, people finally started saying, yeah, we'll publish your book. And I had to say no. Yeah. <laughs> so, are you kidding me? I have to say no to this? And she said, yeah, these, you can do better. This, these, are not, these are not good offers. And so at the very end of last year, 2019, this outfit in New York City, Heliotrope Books, sent me a, a, a contract that was really quite good. And the agent said, yeah, this is, this is the one you want. So she was right. The agent was right all along. And I waited uh, and finally got a good publisher. That's why we need agents. I, I think people don't understand, you know, even when they're like, oh, but you have to give a percentage. You're like, you have no idea. They're like worth 10 times that percentage with what they oh, do, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, I was so eager to get published. If I had taken one of those first four offers, um, I would probably would regret it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. They're definitely, they're definitely worth the commission. And, and the thing about like self-publishing, it's the thing that I was still, I still like tell my students, I'm like, don't even think about it. Get out there. It's because when you're with a publisher, you're automatically with other authors of that publisher. And it's so much fun right. to be like, you know, it's just like, oh, we have the same publisher, instant camaraderie. Um, it it kind of puts you in the group. You, you exactly. get a gang, you know? Yeah, that's right. You're in a kind of a stable of authors yeah. and some of the other authors at Heliotrope have been great. Um, you know, they've been promoting my book and yeah. uh, you know that, so you get, you get that kind of network, which is you know really helpful. And the other, and I wanted to bring up uh, writing at 60 cause I have, I have students coming into my classes and they're like, Oh my God, I'm 30. I know I'm too old for this. I'm just <laughs> doing this as an exercise. And I just want to shake them up and go, you have no idea. I had yeah. Miriam Feldman. Her first book came out at 64. I'm like, this is a debut author at 64. And she's got a great book. You come out, you're, you know, you're, uh, how old were you when you were published? Uh, I am, well, came, my book came out in September. So I'm 65. Came out See, when I was, um, yeah. That's like, see, I just put touchdown signal yeah. up. Because that's, yeah. that's it. It doesn't matter how old you are. Just just write a great book, and you're in. I, it, you know, it's, it's there's just a beauty to it. And plus, 
the experience of having you know having life it, it, it doesn't matter how old you are it, dri- it drives me crazy Absolutely. that there's this it's like no we're not underwear models you know we, we don't <laughs> we don't have to have eight pack abs we all all we have to do is write great well you know i will say the, the one regret i have is once this i finished the book and saw it get published i felt like i wish i'd started this sooner you know, because I really enjoyed this. Writing a novel was so, it was just great. Uh, it was, I, I loved every minute of it. I didn't like every minute of, of querying agents and getting turned down, but writing the novel was just, you know, a, a rush. It was so great. And I said, you know, I just said, I wish I'd been doing this all along. Not that I regret my newspaper career, which I don't because it was great fun. Um, but you know, now I kind of wish I had more time to write more. And I do want to write more novels, but I have to be realistic about how many more I can write starting this late in life. Um, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because some, well, the, I, had a, um, I had a guest on who wrote it. He, he got published at 24. 24, he was off, off the races for writing. His second book was in his 50s. So it's it, it, everyone's journey is so different. And I also feel like you got into a journal, you got in the game of journalism when journalism was ripe and when yes. journalism was juicy. Yep. So I, I feel like you're bringing that to fiction is something that a lot of people won't get. If you, know, if you had just been a novelist the whole time, you wouldn't get that juiciness that you can bring now. Yeah, I think that's one reason that it took me so long to get around to writing a novel is because I needed to live a life. You know, um, I don't, I I admire the uh, young hotshots who get published in their twenties. But I I feel like, well, what, how much have you lived of a life that you can put into a novel? Uh, And for me anyway, it took, I just had to have decades of life experience and observations about the way the world really works and, and all of that kind of exposure, especially you get as a journalist when you're, you know, sticking your nose in everybody's business and kind of obsessively covering uh, the world around us. You just kind of marinate in, in all this stuff and it gets stored up in your brain and, and then it comes out in a novel. And journalism storytelling too. So that's, you know, oh, yeah. there's, there's a, what uh what what was what was your specialty when you were uh, writing for LA Times and well by the time I got to the LA Times um, I was well along in my, my career and at that point I was an editor mm-hmm. so I was an editor on the financial news desk um, for a number of years then I went to the Washington D.C. bureau and was a, an editor there um, in the LA Times Washington bureau that was actually my last job at the times. But, you know, over the years I had, uh, I had covered small town politics as a young reporter in Connecticut. Uh, I'd covered uh, business and economic development in Rhode Island. Um, I transitioned to being an editor when I went to Minneapolis to work at the Star Tribune for 11 years. Um, So I've done a lot of investigative journalism, um, mostly as a investigative editor. Mm-hmm. Um, supervising investigative reporters and editing their work. That was probably the most fun I had in newspapers. 
I I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle. I actually wrote okay. a couple articles for the LA Times too. But when I was uh, the San Francisco, I I had my relationship with my editor, and the, the the relationship with a good editor of the newspaper is so much fun. They 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 go to bat for you. They even go to bat for you again with our managing editor and the people. Of, they're like, no, here's this, here's why. It, there was just a beauty of um, feeling taken care of as a writer when, when I was writing for the Chronicle. Well, then you had a good editor, if that's how you felt. Um, uh, yeah, well, no, there was some later ones where I was like, actually, the last one I had, I was like, you know what? I'm never writing for you guys again. 2015, <laughs> I'm out. You're an asshole. <laughs> I, like, I put the stamp on it. And um, yeah, I wanted to tell the guy in person what a piece of shit he was, but he ended up dying. He's oh. in his 70s. I'm like, and when he died, I was like, God damn it. I never got to tell him what a piece of shit he was. Anyway. <laughs> and then uh, what was funny is the tributes to him and his obits. This is, this is terrible. Speaking ill of the dead, but we'll go there, right? So, the, but the obits and the tributes were, he contributed a lot to the arts and he had a cat. <laughs> and, and I'm, you know it's just like as, as someone who like you're kind of in that world you can read between the lines and go that's all they found out about this guy there was no oh my god you, you know there was no lovers there was there was no one that was yeah. just there was no warmth he contributed yeah. to the arts i'm like wow okay like so i guess i guess i got your personality right brother <laughs> well i always felt as an editor that I really deeply loved and respected the, the, the craft of reporting and writing journalism. And so I felt like my job was to really take care of reporters yeah. and, and make sure that their best work got honored and put in the paper, ideally on the front page, which of course was every reporter's goal. And so like the editors that you talked about, that often meant being in the middle between the senior management at the paper, the suits, right, and, and the and the the foot soldiers, you know, the reporters who are out there actually getting the news and creating the product that goes into the newspaper. Um, so it was. It took a lot of diplomacy, and uh, you had to be able to argue well, because a, a newspaper newsroom, a big city newspaper newsroom, basically is a daily set of people arguing with each other about what's the most important thing happening today. That, that just sounds, that sounds wonderful. It is, <laughs> it is, it's addictive. It's very yeah. heady. And um, yeah, not only what is the most important story today, but how, how do we tell it? You yeah. know, how do, we, how do we put a story out that's better than anyone else's? Yeah. Uh, how do we get a story that no one else has? And then you get all this kind of funny office politics where various editors are championing their reporters' stories and they're trying to knock the other guy's story off the front page. And, uh, you know, going through the story, other guy's story and saying, oh, well, this is a bunch of shit. Uh, this is all wrong. And, you know, here's, here's a better story. Let's put this one in. So it's pretty, uh, uh, pretty intense environment. It sounds fun. I, I, was, I worked on a uh, film and we and in pre-production and we were in production for about a month and it was war it was mm. it was no sleep it was rewrites at night it was and and it was it was probably the best time of my life it's 
And then, you know, the, as, and I was just like, oh my God, I, I understand the juice. And to hear that, that there's that escalated, um, the escalation of a, of a room where there's a bunch of editors like duking it out for their writers. I'm like, Oh yeah. my God, that was, I would love to just, there's gotta be days where you're like, Oh man, I can't do this. I can't be at that speed. But there's some days that are just like, yeah, front page. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think I could do it now, Yeah, uh, but uh, I really, I enjoyed it at the time. I mean, it does wear on you after a while. You can get burned out. Um, but it's, it's sure fun while it's happening. Probably the, the best of that was when I was in the uh, Washington DC Bureau, uh, which of course is an ultra competitive environment because all the big news organizations have Washington bureaus and they're all competing on national stories. Um, so it was, it was very intense, long nights, long days. Um, it, was, it was pretty wild. Is it, and then I always have the romantic notion of like 1970s uh, at, uh, rooms where everyone's smoking cigarettes and they're on typewriters. <laughs> I, I wish I was there. I, I, I want to be there in those newsrooms. I kind of missed that era. Uh, yeah. When I started in newspapers, we were, a few papers where I worked still had some typewriters, but at that point, everyone was switching over to computers. Yeah. And um, I don't, remember ever working in a newsroom where people smoked yeah i think that was already on the way out by the time i got into journalism in the 80s yeah i, I mean i would i'd be dead by now because of secondhand smoke if i was in that <laughs> yeah. room but there's just the there's the little romantic beauty of uh you know what it could what it was my first job was in connecticut at a small paper in bridgeport connecticut and I was catching the very tail end of the old days of journalism at that paper because the newsroom had not been remodeled since the forties, probably, you know, it had the metal desks and the linoleum floor and the bare concrete ceiling and the rat, you know, the acoustics were terrible. The phones were ringing and that old fashioned telephone ringing sound. And there were typewriters banging away. And there were actually people with bottles of booze in their desk. Just, just like in the old uh, stereotypes of newspapering. Uh, but even then, by the time I left that paper three years later, that was all gone. They'd remodeled the newsroom, put in carpeting and computers and yeah. Oh man, I w- it's like, I want to go back in time and just put a microphone, microphones in there and just record the audio of eight hours of just that day. Just have the eight hour recording mm-hmm. of what that sound that we'll never get again. We, we can never get that acoustics, that vibe, that room, you know. Another thing that was great about that paper, um, and this was probably typical at the time, was the, they had the morgue, you know, where they, they keep the old newspaper articles. So as a reporter, when you have a story, your editor, the first thing he says is, did you check the clips in the morgue? Have we written about this before? So you got to go to the morgue and get the clips. And at this paper, the morgue was literally um, shelving with shoe boxes on the shelves with dates written on the front of the box. And then little envelopes in the box filled with yellowed old newspaper clippings. I mean, they'd literally clipped out the paper articles from the newspapers and put them in folders in this box. Today, of course, it's all in the database. You just right. look it up computer 
And that's the kind of detail that I really hope to capture in a, in a future novel. Yeah. I really want to set at least part of a novel in a newsroom like that, where the, where the research is old yellow newspaper clippings in, in envelopes and shoe boxes. And that's something I'd want to see on film too. I want to be like, yeah. you know, it's like, yes, write that novel, get it adapted. Can I come right. on set one day, the day that we're shooting there? <laughs> that's fantastic. What was it like um, moving? What was it like, like culture shock wise, moving from the East coast to Los Angeles? What, what was, uh, cause, cause it's, a, it, it seems yeah. like a, it's just, it is culture shock. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I was moving kind of westward already, having grown up in Maryland and then starting my career in Connecticut and Rhode Island. Then I spent 11 years in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which happens to be my wife's hometown. Um, but I got hired to work at the Star Tribune newspaper there. So I, I got halfway across the country. So I had the Midwest experience. Uh, and then in 1998, um, I got the job offer from the LA Times and uprooted my wife and we had two small children at the time and moved to LA. We didn't know a soul. We had no family out here. I knew a few people at the LA Times who I'd worked with um, in Minneapolis and Providence. So that was good. But it was, you know, we, we came cold to LA and it's something I really wanted to do. Uh, my wife was skeptical. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, I would say it took two years uh, for us to really feel at home out here. But after that, I just felt like, why would I want to live anywhere else? That's LA is like, LA will do that to you. You just go, oh, yeah. I'll, just, I'll just check it out. And the next thing you know, you're yeah. like, oh my God, I can't live anywhere else. This is, yeah. it's LA, come on. Exactly. Yeah, and both my kids, they were, uh, six and four years old when they moved out here. I mean, they are California kids. I mean, they were born in Minnesota, but they don't really have much memory of Minnesota. Huh. Um, and they're just California kids through and through. So, and then, so your wife uh, grew up in Minnesota, so she was yeah. actually leaving her hometown, which is probably yes. even more of a shock. That was that was hard to do. Um, she did not want to go. Yeah. Um, but now, of course, she loves it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you ever go, see, I told you so? Uh, that's probably wouldn't be wise. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm divorced and you're married. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess uh, the more I'll... diplomatic thing to be is to say, thank you for believing in me and coming. <laughs> Where were you when I was having arguments? <laughs> no, it's not, I, I need you with arguments now. I'm still uh, learning how to be a communicator. But, um, yeah, it's uh, so you were also a speechwriter. Is that the you? Yeah, that's uh, when I left newspaper business. I ended up um, working in the corporate world uh, as a speechwriter, and I ended up doing that for 10 years, which is kind of shocking to me. Yeah. Um, 10 years went by fast. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, it was um, purely mercenary work, um, and it, you know, paid well. It allowed me to put my kids through college yeah. and, uh, and keep me in sustenance while this kind of idea for writing a novel started to take shape. Um, so I retired from that job at last year, toward the end of 2019, 
right after I turned 65, in that like the same week, practically, is when I got the, the contract offer for my book. So that, you know, the transition was beautiful. It was just like, I couldn't have planned it any better. Going from hack writer, speech writer to soon to be published novelist, like bang, that was, that was great. Sometimes I wonder when that was that much time synchronicity, if there's something in the universe energy, I'll get hippie here for a second, but something in like the universe energy where we have to close a door and then a door opens for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had been trying to get through that door as you, you know, for a couple of years. So it was, you know, it's, it's just kind of a cool coincidence that it finally opened for me right after I walked out of the other door into the, this new open door. Yeah. Even though I'd, I've been kind of pounding on that new door for like three years. Yeah. But uh, it was still a pretty cool feeling. Uh, oh, yeah. for some odd reason, this just came to my mind. I made the biggest rookie mistake ever as uh, writing my novel. Uh, I finished my first draft. I had my 20 year high school reunion and I went and told everyone that I was a novelist. <laughs> I haven't even sent it out to an agent yet. That's how like ignorant I was. Um, fortunately, a few years later, I finally got, you know, published and everything. But, oh, my God. I, I don't know. If, I, I guess why I'm asking, why, why, I brought, why I thought about that was like, did you tell people in your corporate gig that you're just like, I'm a novelist. Here we go. See, you're smart. Yeah. <laughs> you're shaking yeah. your head. You did. You're, I. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went into that thinking that, you know, this book might completely suck and be a total embarrassment. So I'm not really going to advertise very much that I'm doing this. You know, I told my wife and, and I went, I joined some writers groups. So, you know, I shared my work in progress with writers groups. Um, But other than that, I didn't tell very many people that I was working on a book. It's the smartest thing to do because it's, (laughs) especially if you're starting and then everyone's like, Oh, when's it come out? And you're like, are you kidding me? I'm a year in and this thing isn't even put together. (laughs) Yeah. I also, I did, I lived in dread of telling people and then having them constantly saying, when's your book coming out? When's your book coming out? You know, shut up. Yeah. Uh, So that's, I, you know, kept it very close to the vest and uh, I'm glad I did. And now it's just, it's out. Yeah. And well, the thing is that from when I first decided, okay, I'm going to write this to when I wrote it. And when it came out just in September, that's almost five years. It took five years out of my life. And that's Um, actually an average, if not pretty good. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard of a debut novelist who spent 10 years on their first book. Um, which I can't quite imagine because five years seemed like an eternity to me. It's crazy. It's, and I, I think if we really know the pain and the awfulness of it, I don't think we could start. If, if you knew exactly what, you, what would have happened, the whole process, would you have been able to start the novel, you think? If someone had told me at the beginning of 2016 that your book won't come out till 2020, boy, if they told me it was coming out, I guess that would have been the good news. Um, but if it was going to be like, it's not going to come out till 2020 and you're going to go through, hun- you know, a hundred rounds of rejection and heartache, would I have kept going? I don't know. 
It's a good question. And and your success story. So that there's there's those, you know, it's just like 2016 to 2019 when there's when there's still no contract. That right. that limbo, that wait a second, all I this was so much more work than I ever thought of in my life. And now it might not even get out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, as I said, I, if, if, if the small presses thing didn't work out, if I didn't get any offers from that, I probably would have just uploaded the damn thing to Amazon. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Self-publish, take it Kindle direct or whatever they call their self-publishing thing. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you got with Heliotrope because it's small publishers are everything. I'm, I'm such a huge fan of, these yeah. publishers that have been around. I mean, they're, these are the people that are doing it for the, just for the soul, you know, and yes. they're, they're the ones where they're the ones to look out for the great new books because they're the ones that are just so hungry to get great stuff out there. Whereas it, it feels like less corporate marketing decision and more of a, no, let's yeah. get great work out there. That's small presses are everything. Yeah. I, I'm totally grateful uh, to Heliotrope. I mean, they've been great and it's to, to, to them, it's, it's really, it's a labor of love. You know, you can tell by the books they publish and the writers they have that they have this kind of vision uh, for literature. They do a lot of memoirs and a lot of fiction. Um, and they just, you know, they're good to their writers and they believe in it and that's great. And you don't feel lost. I know I've heard of a lot of people who do get the big contract with a big corporate publishing house and then they're just, you know, they're just, they're lost. You yeah. know, their editor leaves, for example, and then their manuscript is a, is an orphan, you know, and yeah. it just sits there. And meanwhile, the publishing house owns it now. Uh, yeah. And they won't put it out. Um, but, you know, you can't sell it to someone else. So I, you know, there's a lot of things can go wrong. And people don't realize when you when you hear about things like six figure uh, advances and stuff that your novel might not come out or it, they might not even be behind it and it just that's it. There, no one's going to talk about it because they're pushing their other fifty authors that quarter. They right, it's brutal. Yeah, but it's yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. There's something of a great. It's like war. We 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 go to war together and we're like, why did we do this? Oh yeah, because we love the written word. Darn it. Having said that, if my next book, um, if that ends up attracting the interest of a literary agency who's able to sell it to a big publishing house, I wouldn't turn it down. Oh, of course <laughs> but, not. Yeah. But it's, it's nice to know that uh, if that doesn't happen, that uh, I, can, I can try the small presses again. And what's also great is being through the process now, I mean, personally, now I know have meetings with them, talk to them, go, Hey, should I, should I hire outside publicity? You know, there's, there's things to do with your advance, like maybe talk to them about working with an outside publicist and their publicists to strategize, you know, or something, you know, our first books were just like, someone cares. <laughs> <laughs> we don't realize there's all these other steps that happen. We're just like, Oh my God. Yeah. This, this year, 2020, uh, aside from all the other insanity that we've all had to live through is for me, it's been this complete learning experience about what happens after you get a book contract, you know, how does your book actually get published? And 
all the stuff about marketing and promotion and getting blurbs, you yeah. know, going around to other authors kind of hat in hand and saying, would you please read my book and write me a blurb? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of painful at times, um, but you got to do it. Yeah. You know, as an author, uh, especially with a small press with limited marketing budget, you've got to get out there and carry a lot of the promotion weight yourself. And I've, I've set up some of my um, bookstore events. I've had to set them up myself because uh, I do have a publicist, but she's in New York yeah. and she doesn't really have a lot of relationships with LA bookstores. Right. So I've been out, you know, to Skylight and Romans and, and all these other places, uh, Chevalier and Diesel, you know, hitting them up myself and trying to get them to carry my book and um, book me for a, for a Zoom author event. And, the, so and those are all our great, our great bookstores in Southern California. Just, oh, yeah. It's, uh, I think when people, there's such a beauty to Los Angeles because the literary community is just thriving and great. You know, there's just so many great writers down here. And there's just a hunger for great writing. I don't think people see the Hollywood part. They don't know that there's yeah. a whole community. Oh, I think you're right. Um, There's an astonishing number of really good writers here. Um, one area that seems to be really strong these days is crime fiction. Mm -hmm. There's so many people in LA writing great crime fiction. Um, not just, you know, the famous ones like Michael Connolly, right. but, you know, a lot of ones are doing some really interesting literary stuff like Attica Locke and Steph Cha and Ivy Pakota, who's kind of my friend and mentor, helped me with my book. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, and it's a great community because writers really support each other here in LA. Um, and it's, and the book, as you said, the bookstores are, are, a big part of that community too, because the, the independent bookstores around here really support writers, you know, and they, they provide venues for events and promote the books. And it's really, it's, it's, it's been very cool to be part of that. It's a lot of fun. William, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. This has been great. William Loving on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, City of Angles. And while we're all hunkered down, remember the joy of reading and writing. Reading is breathing in, writing is breathing out. And we all need to breathe from what I understand. Anyway, have a decent holiday. I'll see you next Wednesday.